Hello everyone, Kamustaka. Welcome to today's episode, which if you have been keeping track, should be the second half of the Bicolano origin story. But if you have been following along, you would know that I ran into some difficulties when it came to this particular creation myth. You know, you should go back and listen to that episode if you want to know what happened. Okay, fine, I'll just tell you. Basically, the Bicolano origin story is a lot like the Visayan one. And if you're asking me how similar, I don't feel comfortable answering such a very pointed question. Yes, they are similar, but they differ in ownership, which to me is a crucial difference. One that justified a retelling albeit a truncated one, of the Bicolano creation story. It was part of a compromise that I devised, wherein I would offer a shortened version of that familiar story, and a relatively short new story, the following episode, that was still partially about the beginnings of the world as we know it. But, I also owe you a few added remarks, or things of note about the indigenous religion, right? That's how the past episodes went. Okay, yeah, but actually, I'm tempted to debate semantics here because how many episodes does it really take to establish a pattern here? Because I'm pretty sure you have some unrealistic expectations going on. And that's me deflecting again. I think I've admitted before that this podcast was a half-baked idea at launch. It was important in a sentimental sense, but not in a thought-through sense. I wanted to dive into my Filipino side and document it for someone else like me who felt distant and needed a nudge to circle back around. It didn't have to be a perfect nudge but it had to exist. And I'm rambling again. Now that I'm getting more comfortable doing this podcasting thing, I'm not filtering myself as much as I used to do. And I'm sure that may be annoying. But my point, and I do have one, is that I didn't think this through, which would have included anticipating any and all possible problems that I could and likely would encounter. Ignorance isn't any sort of protection, though. Last episode was the first time I ran into what might have been a foreseeable hiccup. And this episode is the second. Because I wasn't sure what additional detail or information to include herein that you haven't already heard before. And look, I don't mean for this set of episodes to be defined by my complaints about my own poor planning, but here we are. Ultimately, many of the bite-sized details of the Bicolano religion, elements of animism, polytheism, and the presence of ancestral spirits, are things you've heard about before. Those are cursory details that don't define religions as a whole, But this isn't the time for more detailed explanations. Not in this, quote, unit. Right now, 
I just wanted to tell origin stories, partially because I didn't know what else to do, partially because I find them interesting, partially because I find them fun and fascinating, partially because those stories aren't being told and untold stories have a nasty habit of dying like my grandfather's did. See Pilot. Partially because so many other stories like this get told all the time. And I wanted these to have that same treatment. But none of that greenlights diving deeper into the nuances that set these religions apart at the moment. And while I've always known, anticipated, and accepted that for now there was quite a lot I would have to leave out with every intention of circling back around later, it's not ideal. It's not a great arrangement, but I never promised you a great podcast. Only a documentation of my own adventures. And those were always going to be a little disorganized. Even so, I still think there's a takeaway here I can and should offer you. For one, I think expecting clear and hard distinctions between the larger beliefs of these religions was foolhardy from the get-go. They are close groups, both in terms of geography and physical relations. Exchange was inevitable and is part of human development to the point that it would be inhumane to deny it here. On the other hand, I can dive a bit into the pantheon of deities for some sort of inspiration. Because we haven't met the Bicolano supreme deity yet, and he's got his own stories to tell. And I think you would enjoy one of those. His name was Gugurong, a supreme deity who ascended to power by defeating his predecessor and declaring his former equal to be his inferior. Yep, you heard that right. Here we get a tumultuous order of gods who are vying for power. Those who succeed then must feel all the more powerful to the people below. Or so I would imagine. But can't you follow my logic here? If a god was strong enough to take power as opposed to just being given it, then you can't have any doubts that this deity could easily smite you. So I picked out a story that both conveyed this idea and also seemed pretty interesting. If you, like me, had to study Greek mythology in school and remember far too much about it. But let's set that aside for now. And let's go. In a time not so long ago, but long enough to be nothing more than a distant memory whispered in the winds around us, the gods of good and evil lived in a forced harmony. Though neither could remember the day, at some point they had reached an understanding. And perhaps because they saw that this was a good balance that protected the created world and kept everything in order, they chose to keep vows they could not remember making. And all was good. The balance consisted of two gods, 
who some thought were brothers, who lived opposite each other. Gugurong, proclaimed to be the god of goodness by the people, lived in Mount Meon. He was tall and muscular, with silver hair running the length of his body. It reflected the light, twinkling like the stars overhead. Aswang, the proclaimed god of evil, lived in Mount Malineo. In his body, there was a great resemblance to Gugurong, and perhaps it was that which made the people think they were brothers. But his hair was very dark, and accented the features of his face. In the day, it made him look quite handsome, but in the darkness, it made him look like a very different creature. Both gods lived their own lives in their mountains, distinct but joined by a need to keep peace and by a growing disinterest in that peace. In their picturesque towers of stone, they could watch each other, and though they had vowed to not interfere, the desire was still there. Around them, the people went about their daily lives, growing food and building homes. They were happy and obedient, having learned not to disobey the orders of the gods. Besides, there was much work to be done, and only so many hours in which they could do it. Crops needed to be tended to, homes needed to be built, fish needed to be caught, and children needed to be minded. But all the same, every so often, someone would look towards Mount Meun, and it would fill them with a sense of worry and dread. Despite being equals, Gugurong had a certain power over the people, one that Asuang did not have, because the god of goodness controlled the fire that resided deep within his home, and thus controlled the people with its might. When fire first seeped from the cracks of his mountain, the people knew the raw power Gugurong had at his disposal. The sight of fire, even after a lifetime, still filled them with awe and dread. After all, fire could destroy all their work and all their hope if Gugurong felt inclined to punish. But if he felt inclined to be generous, Gugurong could ease their hardships. He could give them more time to complete their chores. He could give them a light to chase away the monsters lurking in the darkness around them. He could heat their homes against the cold night air. But these were all things he often chose not to do. And when he did, he only gave them flickers. Small embers of hope for what they could one day have. Or that's what the people would think when the fire would go out. But really, Gugurong knew what he was doing. He saw the careless, arrogant way the people conducted themselves. Though they did not admit it, there was still a sense of restlessness and disobedience 
deep in the heart of the people. It was an urge far too powerful for the people to ignore. And so, Gugurong often had to punish them with earth-shaking rumbles beneath their feet. It was never meant to hurt them, only to force them to correct their ways. Discipline, some would call it, that a loving parent must administer to an unruly child. But Asuang did not agree. He could not see the logic, only that Gugurong had a power he did not have, and that this power led the people to worship him. Gugurong was seen as the giver of life and hope, and the people, though they knew of Asuang, did not seem to care about him. In fact, they mocked him in whispers beneath his mountain. Or this is what he believed. One day, as another rumble filled the land, Asuang felt his discontent surge. He would never do this to the people, he thought. He would give them everything they wanted. They would never suffer under his rule. And for those reasons, Asuang believed he was a far better god. And so, he deserved to be worshipped, not Gugurong. Fortunately for Asuang, he could see a way to end his plight. In his mind, he could buy the people's love just as Gugurong had. The next day, Asuang approached the other god and asked him for a share of the fire. In his heart, he wanted to share this resource with the people, bringing them a never-ending supply of life and joy. When he did that, he believed they would love him. With fire, they would have more time to worship him, warm homes in which they could build shrines to him, and fewer fears to distract them from their love for him. It would be a beautiful life, the sort of thing he dreamed about. But fearing that this would break the truce that held all of creation in balance, Asuang bit his tongue and kept these intentions hidden from the other god as he begged on the throne room floor for a bit of the resource Gugurong had in abundance. But despite Asuang's secrecy, Gugurong could see the other's intentions. Gugurong had learned to read the eyes and search for the intentions hidden therein. He had spent so much of his life doing this with the people who lived beneath his mountain that it came as naturally to him as breathing would to us. He knew Asuang's intention was to give the people fire, and he also knew that it was unwise. The two gods argued for many days and nights. Their voices would send the occasional rumbles throughout the world when words became too heated. But in the end, Gugurong won out. Really, it was a stalemate, but Gugurong had always kept the upper hand. It seemed as if things would always fall in his favor. He still had fire, after all, and Asuang could not take that away from him.
or so he thought. In the darkness of a night, when the moon's shyness compelled it to hide from view, Asuang made himself even more invisible and approached Gugurong's mountain. With the world being what it was, Gugurong had never erected any sort of barrier or fortifications to keep out intruders who would likely never come. After all, he had an agreement with his only rival, and the people knew better than to invade a space they were not welcome in. Asuang took advantage of this. Through the night, he slipped from tree to tree and then rock to rock as he crossed the distance between the two mountains. Time was of the essence. If he did not strike tonight, he did not know when else he could. He did not know when the next night of darkness would come, or if Gugurong would discover his plan and hinder it. There was no time to waste, and no mistake he could afford to make. When he reached the mountain, Aswang entered into the crack that fire had first emerged from. This crack still led to the deepest part of the storeroom, but for a god so large, it was a tight fit. His muscular form did not easily give way to the jutting rocks built into the crack. Neither would give way to the other, but with great effort, the determined god made it inside and moved around the palace, holding his breath and moving as quietly as possible. The palace was easy to navigate. It mirrored his own rather nicely. The hallways and rooms flowed much in the same way. The floor felt the same beneath his feet. And all the tricks and traps that Gugurong had were things Asuang knew quite well. But familiarity made him complacent. His mind fell at ease and his steps became less consistent and calculated. Asuang's left foot landed on a loose stone. It slipped beneath his weight, and a small crackle filled the hallways. It was nothing. Most would not have heard the sound at all, but the well-trained guards were alerted and sought out the source of the sound. They turned the corner and locked eyes with Aswang. At first, they said nothing. In the darkness of the night, Asuang's good looks had faded. His appearance was dependent on light, and in its absence, Asuang became a heinous monster. The guards had heard about this, as all beings had, but they had assumed it was nothing more than gossip from the townspeople. And yet, there Asuang was, a creature out of their worst nightmares. They were shocked and still, unable to move due to their discomfort. It was not fear that seized them, per se, but the unexpectedness of it all. Aswang seized the opportunity. Wordlessly, he presented a handful of the finest gold to them. They looked at each other for a moment. It was more gold than they had ever seen. It was beautiful. It would buy them many beautiful things. And what were they really giving up anyway? They asked themselves. The two gods were at peace, 
Certainly, Asuang did not have any bad intentions. So they took the gold and stepped aside. Unhindered, Asuang made it to the source of all fire. He pulled a coconut shell from his bag, the shell that had carried all the riches the guards now made off with, running for their lives rather quickly despite being weighed down by their sins. Alone and without anyone to get in his way, Asuang opened the coconut shell and scooped up some of the fire. The lights in the throne room flickered, and Gugurong immediately knew what his rival had done. He seethed and yelled out for Asuang with a great roar. As Asuang was exiting the palace, the entire world shook, including the ground beneath his feet. Believing he was free in a vaguely familiar palace, Asuang had let his guard down yet again. The rumble surprised him. But unlike before, he did not have a saving trick up his sleeve. The ground shook, and Asuang lost his footing, a dangerous mistake on the mountain. His left foot slipped, the right soon followed, and he tumbled to the ground. His grip on the coconut shell was lost, just as his balance was. It flew from his hand and landed on the pointed edge of a jagged rock many feet away. The shell split open and the fire escaped. It flowed forth from its container and, unrestrained, it began to consume the world around it, bit by bit, swallowing everything in its wake. It started with the plants on the mountainside before it descended into the villages below. Those two were swallowed up, people screaming in its wake. Asuang could not control the fire. He did not know how, and his hands were not strong enough to take the heat. But the people's cries disturbed him. Desperate, he fled to Gugurong's throne room and begged him for help to control the flames. Gugurong, just as powerless, beseeched the other gods. And at his command, it began to rain. The rain was intense, and it almost drowned the world, but it was enough to put the fire out. However, so much damage had already been done. The world took on a somber atmosphere as the scope of the damage took hold. The people could not even begin to rebuild their lives just yet. Not with so much gone and so many dead. Those who were left exited what was left of their homes just to survey the damage, knowing that they could never forgive the god that let this happen.
This has been a production of Miscellany Media Studios. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, consider subscribing. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Player FM, and other players. Find us and transcripts at miscellanymedia.online or on Twitter at miscellanymedia for updates on current and future projects, including Night and Ink. Do you want to maximize your productivity? Do you want to create all the things while balancing your day job and personal well-being? Let our hosts sort through the advice across multiple dimensions and bring you the best. And the worst, if it's funny. <laughs>